Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. So last week, we really, we got into the meeting and the courtship and the marriage between Frank Troy and Bathsheba, which was a completely whirlwind situation. Totally, as the narrator says, and as Gabriel thinks, it's totally against all of Bathsheba's character. It's like, where is this even coming from? Yeah. Do you ever wake up in the morning and go, um, what just happened? I mean, not usually, but that's probably what she did. Like, what was I thinking? How did this work out? Yeah. And he's kind of showing his, his true personality starting to come out. He's becoming less of the flirtatious, fun, charming guy. Yes. And we find out that he has a serious gambling problem. And that's a, that's a big deal because he's gotten out of the army and now he is really completely financially dependent on Bathsheba and her farm. And he is single-handedly running her farm into the ground Yeah, with his gambling issues. We also found out that he's irresponsible. Like there was the big storm where that could have potentially destroyed like their entire harvest. Gabriel saves everything. Troy gets everybody drunk and does nothing. At the very end where we left off, they're walking. Do you remember where they're walking to? They're just walking back to the farm, I think, from Casterbridge. They run across Fanny. Does she look like there's something wrong with her? Like she's tired. Yeah. yeah. And Bathsheba doesn't recognize her. And Troy doesn't even recognize her at first. So I I kind of get the impression that she is sort of covered a little bit, maybe has a a hood on or something. And she's very diminished. Like she's been very unhealthy for a long time, apparently. And so they don't, either of them recognize her at first. Then he figures, well, when she talks and he figures out who she is and he's like, and he tells Bathsheba, oh, I just know her. I know who she is, mm-hmm. but like barely, I just know yeah. who she is. And she, Bathsheba's like, uh, no, I don't believe you. I don't but believe you. Then tells her, well, he gives her all the money he has. And he says, meet me on Monday at the bridge and I'll bring you yeah. whatever I can. And then she yeah. just kind of like basically crawls to the union house. Yes. With the help of a dog, she gets their step by painful step. Yes. And that's where we yep. find ourselves. We're jumping into chapter 41, which, and I should tell you what it's called. Cause that's what we do. It's called suspicion and Fanny is sent for. Okay. There's a lot to that. The very next day, Troy asks Bathsheba for 20 pounds. He's like, can I just have it? And she's like, Oh man, is this going to be for the races? And He's not going to tell her, of course. So he just like lets her believe that it's for the races. She's like, please don't do this. Hardy talks about how she uses basically all of her womanly wiles, like sort of the puppy dog eyes and the pouty lips and whatever. And her tone of voice and everything. She says, come, let me fascinate you by all I can do, by pretty words and pretty looks and everything I can think of to stay home. Say yes to your wife, say yes. And it's like, this would have tempted him if he hadn't been married to her. But because they were, yeah, but because they're married, it's not even temptation. It's not so sad. In fact, in just a few lines down, he's like, all romance ends with marriage. Really? Okay. (laughs) That's pathetic. And then to me, maybe a psychologist 
or a psychiatrist would listen and be like, no, you're wrong. But to me, he starts doing a bit of gaslighting because he's like, you wrong me by such a suspicious manner. Like such straight waistcoating as you treat me to is not becoming in you at so early a date. You're wrong because you're so suspicious of me. Like, how dare you be suspicious of me? It's like, you're the crazy one. You're the wrong one. Even though he's totally untrustworthy. He does tell her that the money is actually not for gambling debts, but he doesn't actually tell her what it's for. This all leads to him saying, well, all romance ends with marriage. And Bathsheba is just like, heartbroken. And you can kind of just feel the knife being buried deeper and deeper with every part of their conversation and their interaction. She's like, you used to call me darling. And you know, and like, now where are we? And it's kind of sad because it's like, you used to what, like two weeks ago, you know, like it's, they've been married for a few months and yeah, it's already just like done. Yeah. And I, she, I mean, when she's asking him about the money, she's like, I think I have a right to grumble about this if I'm going to give you money. And he says, well, if you ask too much, you're going to regret it. Like what a horrible jerk, just very abusive. And then he pulls out his watch and opens it up. And Bathsheba sees that there is a lock of golden hair in there. (laughs) And she's like, whose hair is that? He's like, oh, it's yours. She has black (laughs) hair. And then finally he's like, oh, well, I'd totally forgotten about it until I pulled my watch out. He's like, it just, it belongs to a lady I was going to marry. And I just forgot about that. And so Bathsheba starts sort of interrogating, well, you were going to marry. So is she alive? Yes. Is she pretty? Yes. And then she uses the tactic of trying to like attack this person and act like she's not as good as he thinks she is. She's like, well, just how sad is it that she has, she's been afflicted with blonde hair. He's like, what? Everybody admires her hair and thinks that she's gorgeous and everything. And poor Bathsheba, she's so just desperate at this point. And I think if Gabriel was watching, he'd be like, what even happened to her? But speaking of Gabriel, I think that we have found that he was prophetic in many ways that when he said in the very, I believe the very first chapter that her biggest fault is her vanity because her vanity made her reject Gabriel right? She was like, no, like basically you're not good enough for me. She wouldn't even pursue that. It was also her vanity that made her try to pursue Boldwood even in such a stupid way. But she's, she's like, well, he's not noticing me. So I'm going to go after him. And then look what happened. Right. And he is in hot pursuit of her. And then it's her vanity that made her jump, literally jump into this very stupid marriage because Troy was like, well, I've seen another lady who's prettier than you. And so I can't guarantee that I'm um, you know, going to be faithful. So she's like, okay, I'll marry you. And now it's her vanity. That's just making her just desperate. Like she's being super critical of this person that she doesn't even know. I mean, she has every right to be very critical of Troy, but the fact that she is just so desperately clinging on to him, like, no, look, I'm prettier. I'm prettier. Like, <laughs> stop. He's a horrible person. Just let him go. Yeah. But it's anyway. like, she wants something she can't have. Yeah. These other guys, she could have them. And she's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I need a challenge. Yeah. yeah. We all know people like that. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> and I think that we all act that way in certain realms of our life. 
whether that's it's true relationships or I think even whatever. Just, yeah. Friendships. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be friends with those people, you mm-hmm. know, the people that wanted to be my friend. It was like, yeah, yeah, I gotcha. I was aspiring and, higher. And you think, no. and you think, well, but I'm actually too good for you. And it's like, but these are your friends. Yeah. So these are actually your people. And the people who are, oh. are nice to you and friends with you, you take them for granted and you're just like, mm-hmm. I already got you. I need to collect more or something. Yeah. Look, none of that made sense. But... Gra- no, it did. <laughs> and it's sort of the grass is greener on the other side That's idea. Right. And also like I'm better than this. And so, yeah, there's a whole lot that goes into it. I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. I mean, there's a lot in this, like how he just tells her, don't be jealous. Yeah. And she wants him to burn the lock of hair. Yeah. He says no. And she's like, you already love somebody better than you love me. And he's like. Why do you say that? And she says, well, because you won't burn that hair, which is, I don't know, maybe it's weird, but I I feel like that would be kind of a strange request coming from the wife. Like, I think the husband should do it voluntarily without being pushed into it. Otherwise, it would be not genuine anyway, you know? She said, so like, why do you even want that? She said, you like the woman who owns that pretty hair. Yes, it is pretty. More beautiful than my miserable black mane. Well, it's no use. I can't help being ugly. You must like her best, if you will. Yeah, she's gotten to that point where she's like, well, I guess I'm ugly because- Which is funny because she's like known as being like, she's pretty much the most beautiful girl in the area, right? Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't know that the the hair belongs to Fanny yet, but even so, yeah, she knows that she's admired everywhere she goes. She is also- well off. She's a, a fairly prosperous farmer. She owns the farm in her own right, you know, it was left to her by her uncle. So she's doing so much better than all these other women, especially this girl. Again, she doesn't know who this girl is, but it doesn't matter. And so for her to be so jealous and just kind of petty is, is very beneath her. And it's very sad. I mean, you can understand she's like desperately trying to hold on to her husband, but he's trash. So, and that's really easy for us <laughs> to say, but there it is. He's the worst um, kind of significant other. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, like he even yells at her for being so desperate. Yeah, he does. He's like, like, stop being so desperate. Stop being so jealous. And after he says that, he leaves. As soon as he leaves, she sort of has this moment of reflection. And she says that she hated herself now. In those earlier days, she had always nourished a secret contempt for girls who were the slaves of the first good-looking young fellow who should choose to salute them. She had never taken kindly to the idea of marriage in the abstract as did the majority of women she saw about her. And now here she is. She jumped into this and desperately trying to hold on to it. And it's not working out. So she feels like she is now in the class of all these people that she had this contempt and hatred for before. And now she finds out, well, guess I've got a lot to learn. Guess I'm not really any better than anybody else. Yeah. I'm exactly the woman that I didn't like and Mm -hmm. don't want to be. Thinks back to her old self as like self-sufficient, respectable. And she's like, Mm -hmm. if I could just go back to being that again. Yeah. And yet at the same time, there's always a reason for everything. And she can't go back to where she was before because even that independent girl had so much pride and vanity that she would just keep going in the same vicious cycle. And so she has to learn from this and move on, keep her independence, keep her high spirit, but leave the pride behind. So the next morning, it's still the same chapter. A lot happens in this chapter. (laughs) So she is just walking around her farm, obviously very distraught. And she sees that Gabriel is already checking on things. I love this because she sees that 
he's out already checking on things and she finds herself preceded in forethought by Gabriel Oak for whom she began to entertain the genuine friendship of a sister. That's how she sees it. She's like, we have this relationship that's so close. It's like we could be brother and sister. Of course, she sometimes thought of him in the light of an old lover and had momentary imaginings of what life with him as a husband would have been like. So, oh, she actually has like entertained that idea just a little bit. She's allowing herself to, which is a big step. Bathsheba, though she could feel, was not much given to feudal dreaming and her musings under this head were short and entirely confined to the times when Troy's neglect was more than ordinarily evident. So it's like she basically is feeling so low that she allows herself to sort of muse like, what would life have been like with Gabriel, you know? But she doesn't generally let herself do that because I think that she is a faithful and true wife. And she knows that those kinds of thoughts are not good in a marriage relationship. And it's in this moment that she finds out the really horrible news. She sees Gabriel and Boldwood talking and then Boldwood leaves and she's relieved about that. And then Joseph Poorgrass comes over and says, Fanny Robin has died. Of course, uh, to this point, she still does not know that Fanny is the woman that Troy loved. Okay. So to her, these are two very different sets of problems. She's got Troy who has a blonde lock of hair has walked out on her saying that he loves this other woman. And then over here, she's just found out that Fanny Robin has died. There's no connection for her right now or for anybody else. Nobody else really knows. Well, yeah. Her only connection is that Fanny was her uncle's servant. So that's the only connection she sees right now is that. Yes. She's going to do something. What was it? Because Boldwood's going to send a carriage to get the body. Well, so he had said that he was going to send a wagon to fetch the body. And Bathsheba was like, no, I'm going to do it because she was a servant in my uncle's house. And I only knew her for a short time, but she was here for a long time. And so I have that responsibility. I really love this part. And I feel like Maybe we could talk about it for a minute, but it says Bathsheba had begun to know what suffering was and she spoke with real feeling. After that, she puts together the wagon. She very carefully chooses all this greenery and these flowers so that it's a beautiful setting to go and collect Fanny's body, which is in a coffin. And she wants it to be, yeah, just well thought out and as peaceful and beautiful as possible. I was just thinking about that. Okay. So her suffering is obviously a bit different than Fanny's suffering. They both kind of suffer at the hands of the same man, but it's still a bit different. Her suffering is different from like Gabriel's suffering or Boldwood's or other people. It's still just suffering. And so why is it that when we have had real suffering, we suddenly have so much more empathy and compassion for other people in their suffering, even if it's not the same kind, it doesn't really matter. Anyway, that's just a thought that I had is just like, Suffering is just suffering and there's many different breeds of it. Unless we've really experienced it, we may have a hard time empathizing with other people and their path and their suffering. Yeah. I think like the more, the harder your suffering is, I don't know, I guess it's like building up tolerance. I think the worse the things are that you go through, the more in the future you can tolerate. Does that make sense? Well, so yeah. Like I've been thinking about people who are super dramatic about certain things. And then you look at their life and you're like, well, they haven't really suffered much. So any little bit of suffering is like the end of the world or this huge deal where you're just like, and I mean, there's varying degrees for everybody, right? Like I've been through a lot, but like not near as much as somebody else that I might know, but it's just interesting. And then when you do go through, through those things, 
when you look at other people, you're like, yeah, way more empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you you're, this is great. I think when you, when you haven't been through hard things, it's harder to be compassionate and empathize with others. And empathize. It is like, you just don't know where they're coming from. And a lot of times you end up being judgmental. I think, Yeah, I think get it together. Yeah. Or like you must've done something wrong. Or look at all these things leading up to this. Now you need to fix, you know, it's just, they kind of go into this mode of let's fix you or, or you do something. It's, it really does. I love the book of Job because I think that it addresses this idea so much. There's Job. He experiences like every kind of suffering and you had his friends who came and sat with him at first and then they started going, well, Job, you know, if you had done this differently and this differently, maybe your kids wouldn't have all died on you, you know? And and it's like, no, you know, like crap happens. Yeah. And when bad things happen to you, then you realize it. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't do this. I actually, yeah. This yeah. Didn't, I mean, sometimes you do, but yeah. most of the time, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Like everybody has hard things. And I think, you know, like for me, the last year has been pretty hard for our family. We've had a couple of things that have been really wonky. What has been really interesting to me is the amazing people who have been there for me through it. I didn't even realize until like this past year, the hard things that they've been through in their life, but they shared it with me. And it was like, and so they have been very just supportive and non-judgmental and like so loving because they know how to be. They mm-hmm. know like they know what you need in your moment of sorrow and hardship because they've been there. When I was expecting our first child and David, my husband was in the hospital for a significant amount of time. We were kind of in and out of the hospital for a couple of months. And I was like, after it was over, I was like, I'm going to write a book on what to do for people when they're suffering because through suffering, I had like realized what people needed and what was helpful. And so, yeah. Well, I think that you still should. Have you started it? (laughs) I think that you should like, because I think that is a really hard thing. Like people don't really know what to do. And so, because I think that there are the people who have this special gift that maybe they haven't been through extreme sorrow in their life, but they just have this incredible heart that they can be there for you. But most people just don't unless they have been there somehow. And I mean, when you have a big problem like that, you know, we didn't know if he was going to live. Yeah. And I was about to have our first baby and you just see the people that want to do stuff and, Mm -hmm. and they'll, they're just there for you. And then you Mm -hmm. see the people that aren't, they just can't comprehend what you're going through. Yeah. Or they, you know, I struggle with that too, too. Like, I just don't know what to do sometimes. So maybe- And that's human. Yeah. 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 Someday. Well, and it'd be interesting too, to just get like, to sort of gather some data from different people who have been through different things and to be like, hey, what really helped you in that situation? You know, that actually might be a really fun book to write. We'll have to go Like hard. I know. (laughs) It'd be hard, but it would be good. I think it'd be really good. That's awesome. At the end of this chapter, we find out. So the conversation with Joseph progresses, progresses. You can see Bathsheba putting the pieces together and she's like the little light bulbs are going on and she's like, (laughs) wait a minute. First, she asks if she 
if Liddy, if this girl had been walking on like the path that she'd seen that lady on. So that's like yeah. the first light bulb. Yeah. And uh, she asked Joseph what color Fanny Robbins hair was and he couldn't remember, but he thought that it was light. So yeah, that conversation keeps going. And then she talks to Liddy, like you say, and that buttons it all up. Everything is put into place. And this is how it kind of happens. Uh, Liddy tells her that one time she had asked Sergeant Troy if he knew Fanny Robbins, young man who was in the same regiment as Sergeant Troy. And Sergeant Troy's response was, and this is Liddy telling Bathsheba this, that yes, he knew Fanny Robbins, young man. He knew him as well as he knew himself. And he liked him better than anybody in the regiment. Yeah. He also says, oh, and he also looks a lot like me. In fact, a lot of people sometimes get as confused. Oh my gosh. Um, And I kind of loved <laughs> poor so Liddy funny. because she has just no clue whatsoever. And she's, oh yeah, la, 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 la. And Bathsheba's like, for heaven's sake, stop your talking. Because she's put it all together. Yeah. So that was a really, <laughs> it really was. long discussion for that chapter, but it was it was good stuff. Lots of stuff happened. Basically, so chapter 42, we can go through that one a lot faster. It's uh, it's called Joseph and His Burden and Buck's Head. And it is tragically funny, sort of dark humor type of thing because Joseph Porgrass is sent to Casterbridge to pick up Fanny in this wagon that Bathsheba has very thoughtfully and carefully prepared. He goes and picks her up. And as he's driving back and it's many miles back to Weatherbury Farm, he's like going through the forest and it describes how it's dense fog comes up and it's just super creepy. You can just imagine fog and you can kind of every once in a while see little bits of color and all of a sudden the leaves above in the trees, they get so full of the condensation that the drips of water start coming down on the coffin. And so it's just like creepy. (laughs) Anyway, he really builds it up. And so Joseph Porgrass is just going, "Ah." and so the first like, sign of life and um, goodness outside of the the dark and foggy forest is the Buck's Head Tavern. And so he stops there with poor Fanny's coffin in the back of his wagon. And he's like, I'm just going to go in for a drink. And there's his friends, Mark Clark and Jan Coggin. And they're like, oh, She's dead. She's not going anywhere. Have another drink. Have said, another drink. Go said, ahead. I've had a pale companion for the last four miles. And to speak the truth, twas beginning to tell upon me. He's like, it's been this a little a creepy. Trial. Yes. yes. I need a drink. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. He keeps saying like, I need to go to the churchyard. And they're like, oh, just have another drink. Yeah. And so I believe it's been about three hours. He's been sitting there and he knows that like Parson Thirdly, the right. the clergyman, yeah. right? Yeah. He's the parson for that area of that parish. He's waiting for Joseph to show up at the churchyard so they can bury Fanny like that evening. So it's just been hours. And finally, Gabriel Burston, because he's like, okay, where are they? And so he probably starts like down the road and just keeps going and going until he arrives at the tavern and is like, oh my gosh. Their exchanges are really funny. It like they talk about how they're seeing double, and it's a strange thing that happens when I start drinking. <laughs> start- well, he calls it the, yeah. a multiplying eye. Yeah, a multiplying eye. <laughs> as if phenomenon. this is hilarious. As if he was Noah at the entrance of the ark. <laughs> I love it. There's another Bible reference. There you go. Yeah. Who says this? Let's see. Coggin. He's like, 
drink shepherd and be friends for tomorrow we may be like her you know yes. <laughs> we may die tomorrow so just stop and drink for a while and of course gabriel's <laughs> like no i wrote down that gabriel realizes that there's nobody here capable of taking the wagon to the yeah they're, <laughs> they're all completely just wasted and the people knew about fanny's death but they didn't know that troy was connected to her right but Gabriel knows. And he so, knows. So he's hoping that we can like keep this a secret for a little while longer. Yes. Trying to protect he, well, Bathsheba. Because Boldwood knows the whole story. So I'm sure he's confided in Gabriel. And now Gabriel, he decides to take the wagon the rest of the way, obviously, because yep. nobody else can. He just leaves those guys at the tavern. And now he knows even more. So he drives the wagon back with Fanny to Weatherbury Farm and at this point, it's just too late. And he doesn't have the proper paperwork to get her buried because Joseph Poorgrass has that. And so basically it ends up that the coffin is going to have to stay in Bathsheba's living room for the night. It doesn't have to, but Bathsheba is actually the one who's like, no, like bring it inside. We're not going to leave it outside all night, you know? And so he's like, okay. Cause Gabriel, I think he wanted to leave it outside because he didn't want Bathsheba to see this. So they take it inside. And as he's getting it settled, Gabriel stays in the living room. Everybody else leaves. And it says that he erases part of this chalk writing on there because the people who had placed Fanny in the coffin had written on there, Fanny Robin and child. And yes. so Gabriel erases and child. So now we know it had yeah. never said anything before, but Fanny Robin was pregnant with Troy's child. And so both she and the baby had died. And evidently she was quite far along because they were able to tell just from her. The child is in her arms. She's holding the baby. Dude, did I miss that? Yeah. She like. Did not, um, oh my gosh. I totally missed that. I kind of wonder wow. if she, I think it's coming quick. Because when she opens the coffin, she sees that she's holding an infant. That she's holding it. Wow, I must have been really tired when I was reading and listening. To well, that. you get like 99% more of this than I do. So I'm like super <sighs> impressed that I found, figured out something. <laughs> I'm like, as you're re as you're talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, how did you get that? Like the, <gasps> the, the water dripping off the leaves onto the coffin. I'm like, okay, this is, a, <laughs> this is the second time I've read it, but still, you probably read it well, several times. Well, I'd always... I have read it several times, but I've always been like, was she holding the baby? But I just have never seen evidence of it. So, okay, I'm excited. Let me, so, well, we'll see if we can find it. Over to you. So the, chapter 43 is Fanny's Revenge. Bathsheba tells Liddy that she doesn't need any more help. And so Liddy offers to stay with the body. And then Bathsheba is asking all these questions. She's trying to like gain more information about it, right? She asks Liddy, was, was Fanny sickly or had anybody noticed that there was something wrong with her? <laughs> Liddy's like, mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. And then she says, well, it would be impossible for her to die of consumption like the day after she had walked all those miles. And so she asks if she'd heard anything strange about Fanny. Liddy says, no. <laughs> Bathsheba just bursts into tears and says goodnight. <laughs> Yeah. She's like a mess. She's figuring this all out. Yeah. Yeah. And she's so she's trying to figure out why Fanny would have just died so suddenly, which she probably died in childbirth is my guess. Yeah. We'll have to Good. find it. So then later, Liddy comes up to Bathsheba's door and says that Marianne had heard a rumor that there are two people in the coffin. So, okay. um, and Bathsheba says, well, the coffin only lists one name on the, you know, on the nameplate. 
Liddy says other people didn't believe it either. Gabriel says this story she's hearing is about another girl. So he's just totally trying to protect Bathsheba this whole time. So she kind of sits there in the living room and staring into the fire for hours. And she's just like stewing over what she's learned and what's going on. She knew, you know, that she had ran into Fanny the week before, but Gabriel and Boldwood did not know that she had run into Fanny. And she says that she wishes she could go talk to Gabriel about this because he's really good at knowing like what to do and not worrying about himself. He's not like Boldwood or Troy, right? That are self-serving. Well, I just love that because I was like, that is such a, maybe it's a feminine thing. I don't know. But again, I love how Hardy just, just he's observed and he knows like when we have something traumatic, we just need to talk to somebody about it. And it, (laughs) it can't just be anybody. It has to be like, somebody that we know is going to be sympathetic and is going to listen and going to be like, yeah, (laughs) you know, or that's going to tell us the truth, which is in her case, she's like, I just want to go talk to somebody. I want to talk to Gabriel. He knows he's going to tell me the truth and he's going to be, you know, like sympathetic. Anyway, I love that. Okay. Yeah. She knows that he's the best one. I think she's seeing that all around, right? Yeah, totally. So she walks over to his cottage and there's a light on and he's reading and she watches him for a while, but she's afraid to go in and talk to him. So she sees him go upstairs and he, she sees him in the window upstairs that he starts praying. And so she decides not to bother him. So she goes back home. When she gets back home, she's kind of in the hall, which I think is right outside where Fanny is. And she says aloud that she wishes Fanny would tell her whatever her secret was. And then it says she goes into the room and without thinking, she just opens the coffin. So this must be where it says in the coffin, Fanny's holding a newborn baby wrapped in white linen. So it's got to be in there. Let's see. We're in chapter Well, because she does go, because she actually goes and gets a screwdriver and like because it's not just like a coffin you can just lift up the lid like she has to like yeah she has to unscrew it and so like she says oh i hope it is not true that there are two of you if i could only look in upon you for one little minute i should know all she found herself in the small room quivering with emotion a mist before her eyes and an excruciating pulsation in her brain standing beside the uncovered coffin of the girl who's conjectured end had so entirely engrossed her and saying to herself in a husky voice as she gazed within it was best to know the worst and i know it now i want it to say that there were two people in there yeah i mean she's like i mean because she says that i hope it's not true that there are two of you and then she's like it was best to know the worst and now i and i know it now so it's saying you know like it is true there are two i I don't know. Mm. And especially that detail about a baby wrapped in white linen. Like I, anyway, we can go back to talking about Well, here's what's interesting though, is like they met her, well, except she was covered. I was like, they met her on the road and they didn't know she was expecting. So like, I would think that in the coffin, it would be hard to know that she was expecting. Mm -hmm. The synopsis I read said that she was, the baby was laying in white linen. So I love to, (laughs) I wrote down at this point, Bathsheba is willing to do anything except go talk to Gabriel. That will give her information to help her decide what to do next. So like going and opening up the coffin mm-hmm. was, I mean, I wouldn't do that. We're no. kind of like things that aren't alive anymore. Especially, oh, oh. And it's just, it's so sad. I know. <laughs> so she says, oh, I hate her. Yet I don't mean that I hate her for it is grievous and wicked. And yet I hate her a little. <laughs> yes, my flesh insists upon hating her, whether my spirit is willing or no. If she had only lived, I could have been angry and cruel towards her with some justification. But to be vindictive towards a poor dead woman recoils upon myself. Oh, God have mercy. I am miserable at all this. 
And it's so, so it's so sad. I thought it was interesting. It talked about, you know, the name of this chapter is Fanny's Revenge. I think it mentions it a little bit earlier. Fanny has been immortalized in as being this perfect person, you know? And so that's always how she's going to be remembered. She's a victim. She was very ill. Life had done her wrong. And so she's always going to be remembered as a beautiful and tragic character, especially for Troy. And he shows that like he was so cruel to her in life. But now that she's dead, it's like, well, we'll talk about that more. But but at the same time, like none of this is Fanny's fault other than the fact that she like she did go and like tried to beg Troy to come to whatever. But in these days, when we talk about consent, I assume there was some consent there with her relationship with Troy. But he had promised her that he would marry her. She had like tried to pursue that to be like, um, like, no, you need to marry me. And then she had to leave because she was evidently pregnant. Just all these things that happened down to her death are just really, she is a very tragic victim in all this. And Troy is, as we've said many times, he's just the worst. He's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. And so like in this moment, she realizes that her husband prefers fanny so that's awful this comes clear yeah but then she realizes she's made a huge mistake in marrying him and now she's gonna have to suffer the consequences in that moment she remembers that gabriel had been praying and so she thinks well i'm gonna pray (laughs) so she kneels down and starts to pray she feels better when she stands up and then she goes and puts those flowers around fanny's head and then she hears troy coming in here she hears the coach and then he's coming into the mm-hmm. room to see what's going on and he doesn't know anything about this he doesn't know fanny's dead this is all new to him i just found it <gasps> you did the candle was standing on a burial close by them and the light slanted down distinctly and kindling the cold features of mother and babe there you go I two words the- yeah <laughs> <laughs> but how did i miss that before how have I missed it like over and over so again? I guess it, I was reading it fast. Is it when Troy is coming in? When Troy is okay. is in. Yes. We're looking at the wrong spot. So he comes in. He has no idea that it's Fanny laying in the okay. coffin. And so he asks her what's happened. She kind of says, I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me go. And he insists that she stays and he grabs her hand and they walk up to the coffin together. He looks in and he has no reaction, which I think is kind of interesting. And then she asks, do you know her? (laughs) If we're going to go through this again. And he says he does. And then he says, that's Fanny. And he leans in and kisses her. Like I said in there, like an infant. Which that, that line right there, like that it's, it's so sad, especially whenever anybody says kissing somebody's cheek, like you'd kiss a sleeping infant. And I'm like, makes me think of my babies <laughs> but the fact like it's just it's so sad yeah poor fanny and her sweet baby and now we know they're yeah it was like actually a, she did have her baby and they've both passed away and that's it's, it's so sad i get the feeling that she wants to approach this with troy as like mm-hmm. a married couple but then yeah. when he bends down and kisses her she's like oh this is mm-hmm. a whole another situation i didn't explain and so she gets she springs at him and is like kiss me too yeah <laughs> begs him to don't kiss, her. kiss them kiss me yeah oh and she says don't kiss them she does yeah yeah don't kiss me he's it's like he says he can't believe that this was his proud wife like again she's so desperate he's like what happened to you troy says i'm not gonna kiss you it's <laughs> so awful uh. fanny is more dead 
than Bath. I don't know what it says exactly, but Fanny is more dead than Bathsheba ever was or will be. Oh, says, yeah, this is more to me. Is more to me. Yeah. Oh, is more to him dead. <laughs> yes. Then yes. I'm like, she's not more dead, more to him dead. This is how he says yeah. it. This woman is more to me dead as she is than you ever were or are or can be. If Satan had not tempted me with that face of yours and those cursed coquetries, I should have married her. I never had another thought till you came in my way. So yeah, he's like, I was going to marry her, but then you came in and you tempted me. Would to God that I had, but it is all too late. I deserve to live in torment for this. He turned to Fanny then, but never mind, darling. In the sight of heaven, you are my very, very wife. It's like knife in the chest and twist it. (laughs) Yeah. My favorite is that he's very consistent. He just thinks he can change the rules. What he says is, you know, in the beginning, he's like, well, it's not going to rain. It totally rains. And right here, he's like, a ceremony before a priest doesn't make a marriage. I am not morally yours. It's like, well, actually, like literally everybody ever would completely disagree with you (laughs) in that assessment. But Sure. Change the rules, man. Yeah. So Troy says to her, she starts wailing and she's like, what, what are you to me? And he says, you're nothing. Mm -hmm. You're nothing to me. And so she turns and runs out. So I think this, even in death, Fanny won. Yeah. Bathsheba still has feelings for Troy, which is awful because where he used to be like flirtatious and teasing, now he's just cruel. It may be because he's feeling guilty for how he treated Fanny. I don't know. but. For sure. I think there's a lot of guilt. Also victimhood. Like he thinks he's, he treats Bathsheba as if it's her fault. Like he's like, well, if the devil hadn't tempted me with your beautiful face, he's very much blaming. Yeah. He's, he's blaming. He's, he wants to play the victim instead of taking any real responsibility. So while there's guilt, there's also wanting to displace that guilt and put the blame on somebody else. Yeah. Oh, he's a fun one. Okay. So chapter 44, under a tree reaction. Hopefully we can go through this really quick. So Bathsheba runs away and she's kind of not paying attention to where she's going. She's just like, I'm getting out of here. (laughs) She ends up by the trunk of a tree and she sits down and closes her eyes. And then later she kind of wakes up and she hears some birds and a plow boy. This is funny because it's like this dramatic part of the book. And then you kind of have this comedy right here. Where Mm -hmm. this boy is trying to memorize a verse and he's like, I think it said in there that he was probably a dunce because he's repeating the same words. Yeah. It's just funny how he's trying to desperately trying to memorize. Yeah. He's repeating it over and over. Then she sees Liddy coming down the road and she calls to her and she's like by the swamp. It says Liddy comes through the swamp and then starts asking Bathsheba some questions. Bathsheba's like, I don't want to talk. Don't ask me any questions. But then she starts asking Liddy questions. <laughs> Has Fanny been taken away yet? Liddy says, no, they're going to come get her at nine o'clock. And then she goes and gets some food and tea for Bathsheba, who doesn't want to go inside. So now Bathsheba's like, I need to avoid this situation. I need to avoid Troy. Like she's trying to stay away from him. So they kind of wander in the woods for hours. She says that she wonders if she might never go home again. Yeah, she kind of determined that she wasn't going to. And then she had a little bit of a change of heart. Yeah, she's like, only women without pride would run away. So I'm going to stick this out. I'm going to stay. Yeah. So finally, they come back to the house, but they sneak in through the back. She's trying to avoid Troy. So she asks Liddy to like make the attic comfortable so her and Liddy and Marianne can kind of hang out up there mm-hmm. so she can avoid him. And this is another, I think another funny part is that 
she's asked Liddy, well, what are we going to do up there? Liddy's like, well, we could sew. And she's like, mm, no. And she's like, well, we could knit. No. And she's like, we can work on your samplers. No. <laughs> so she asks Liddy to bring her some old books. And she says, I'm not in the mood to read anything new. So she gives her this list of books that she could bring to her. They stay up there all day long. But Troy doesn't even ever appear or try to find yeah. her or anything. So it's kind of funny. She's trying to distance herself from Troy in their house. And I think this is funny because... This is how I was when like my husband and I first got married and we would have arguments is I would like retreat. I'd be like, mm. I'm just going to stay in my bedroom all day and not talk to him. And then he's going to know that I'm really mad. He didn't care. He's, he's probably like, be, sorry. Yeah, he's probably like, I have control of the TV. <laughs> and like, I'm sitting in there stewing for hours and he probably has no clue. So I just thought that was funny. That's really funny. And so it's, but that's exactly like what she was doing. She, yeah. cause she's like, I'm just going to stay here indefinitely. And he doesn't even care. He doesn't even care. He's not even there. And we find out he had not really even given her a second thought. So nope, he doesn't go yeah. look for her. He's just like, she's yeah. doing all this. For like She's literally hurting herself. Yes. So as we move into chapter 45, Troy's romanticism. After Bathsheba had run away and was doing all this stuff, we're kind of backtracking in time mm. to see like what his reaction was. He had thrown himself on the bed and was wait just waiting for morning. So that day he had put together 27 pounds and he had driven to Casterbridge to meet Fanny because they had arranged for this meeting on the bridge. And he told, had told her I was going to bring all the money I can. So that's how much he had. So he had sat down to wait for her. He didn't know but she was dead <laughs> at the yeah. moment she was being put in a coffin. Yeah. That's what had happened that day. So then he drives to Casterbridge to go see the Mason to talk about what kind of a gravestone, this 27 pounds that he had saved acquired, what kind of gravestone it could buy. The Mason shows him what he has to offer. And Troy says, this is what I want written on the stone. And so after that, he rides back to Weatherbury Churchyard with this gravestone. So he comes back and he brings with him a spade and a lantern and he starts planting flowers, beautiful flowers around her grave. As he finishes, he feels it start to rain. And he's like, I'll just finish this another day. And he like, I think that this is showing that he really does love Fanny. He cares because he's planting these flowers. But any little thing, like a few raindrops, is going to stop him from doing this. Yes. So. Yes. Well, and and even to back up a little bit in the same chapter when it talks about how he went to Casterbridge to meet her after he'd been waiting for a little bit, he started to get mad at her because he's like, oh, she's doing this again. And he immediately assumes the worst. And so he goes off to the races. And so it is, it's, it's, it's like, he like I think he likes the idea of her more than he actually likes her because I don't know that he actually really likes anybody except himself, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, so he, he does these grand gestures, but when it comes to having any integrity or really any follow through, it's just not there. Kind of like when she, he said he was going to marry her and she went to the wrong church and he's mm -hmm. like, any sign of trouble, he's like, yeah, forget it. Exactly. So he doesn't even really love the woman he loves. No, I don't. I don't think that he's actually capable of loving anybody besides yeah. himself. I think. Yeah. Interesting. So 46. This is I found this really interesting, this whole chapter. Well, the whole next couple of chapters. So 46 is called the gurgoyle. It's doings. We we call them gargoyles. I don't know about anybody else, yeah. but that's what it's talking about. But 
the first several paragraphs of the chapter are just talking about these grotesque and nasty 400 year old, very Gothic style gargoyles all over the church. Several of them are not even in commission anymore. They, they can't even be used, but there's two that are, and they do the job just fine of draining all the water from the roof. Right. And displacing it, putting it someplace else. Well, it just so happens (laughs) that this hideous gargoyle, there's a rain, like there hasn't been rain in a long time. This hideous gargoyle is like literally spitting all of its water right onto Fanny's grave, which was very poor planning on somebody's part. And so it talks about it, like turning it into sort of almost like this churning hot chocolate type of thing. I mean, that's kind of what I got from it, but it pulls up all of the flowers that Troy had planted, all of them. Like he planted Mm -hmm. all these wolves. He planted a lot, not every single one that he brought, but he planted a lot and all of them are uprooted and just cast everywhere. So Troy awakes the next morning. He actually like slept on the porch of the church. So he goes and he sees that all of his work had been destroyed. And instead of doing anything about it, he's just like, and so he, he heads to Budmouth, which is where like the races are. He sort of escapes. He heads down the road to Budmouth. Now, everybody knew that there was a horrible storm. In the morning, Bathsheba, she wakes up. She hadn't actually been to see where Fanny had been buried. She can't like bring herself to, but Liddy's like, don't you want to just go see? It does talk about how the night before she'd kind of looked out and she had seen this light down in the churchyard and she couldn't help but feel that there was some sort of connection between her rival Fanny and the light through the trees that something was going on. And of course, we know that that was the light that Troy was using as he was planting the flowers and he's going back and forth. She finally does head down to the churchyard. Troy's already gone. She goes down and she sees that Gabriel is actually already there and he's gazing at the headstone. And as much as he would like to keep her from it, he cannot. And so she sees what Troy has had engraven on the headstone. And it says, erected by Francis Troy in beloved memory of Fanny Robin. It says the Oak saw her and his first act was to gaze inquiringly and learn how she received this knowledge of the authorship of the work, which to himself had caused considerable astonishment. Gabriel knows the history. He knows of the connection between Troy and Fanny. He knows that there was a baby. I don't think even he could comprehend how Troy could do something this flagrant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Bathsheba at this point, you know, we've, we've talked about all of her just like emotional outbursts and her meltdowns and stuff. And at this point she, I think she's done, like there's nothing more for her. And so instead of having a meltdown, she asks Gabriel to fix the grave, you know, to get a shovel and fix it because it's really just the rain has just destroyed it. She herself actually goes in and replants all the flowers And the thought that I had is Gabriel Oak, he continually comes in and fixes the things that Troy Mm -hmm. leaves in ashes over and over again. Troy leaves things burning. Oak comes in and fixes it. We'll just continue to see that. That is another aspect of Gabriel Oak's character. And in this case, that is what Bathsheba is doing too. She comes in and she fixes what Troy has destroyed. Throw it down the she also asked the church warden to turn the gargoyles now yeah. so that it won't do it again. Yeah. I'm glad that you remembered that because I think that's really important. Like she thought of all the contingencies and, and all the details to make sure that it wouldn't happen again. Because again, I think that we're seeing this maturity and this changing in Bathsheba, which was needed yeah. to where she's not needing vengeance on Fanny. They also um, think that Troy has gone to the horse races. 
right? Did we say that? I think, I think have. uh said yeah, Budmouth, well, it says that he'd gone to Bedmouth, which is where the races were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, yeah, they do think that 47 is called adventures by the shore. It's a very short chapter. And so I'm just going to very quickly summarize it because um, basically Troy is making his way to Budmouth, but as he's going, evidently it's like along the shore and he like looks down and he's like, Oh, that water looks so inviting. I want to go swimming. And it is a place where people commonly go swimming, but it's also a place where people are commonly drowned because it's very dangerous. So he takes off all his clothes, leaves them on the shore, gets in the water. And then after just a short time, he realizes he's made a mistake. He's getting swept along. He can't catch on to anything. So he's like thinking this is the end. But then all of a sudden he sees a boat as luck would have it. The light was such that the sailors in the boat could clearly see him. So they hustle over, they row over, and they're able to rescue him. And then they cart him off to their ship. And we'll learn more about that later. But he nearly drowns, but he doesn't. Chapter 48 is called Doubts Arise and Doubts Linger. Interesting. We're diving a little bit more into Bathsheba's point of view. Says that she has pretty much come to grips with the fact that she's going to lose the farm. I guess they like rent the house or however it works. They have, they do have to like pay somebody every Mm -hmm. year, whether that's like a mortgage or a rental or whatever that is, you know, there's never been a problem. The guy who owns it all, however that works, he had complete faith in her uncle, James Everdeen, and she's doing just great and has been, but she's realizing that poverty is inevitable and she's probably going to lose everything. One day she makes her way to Casterbridge. And this is the first time that she's gone since I think she was married. Mm-hmm. As she goes in there, she overhears a couple of men talking. And one says to the other, he's like, I'm looking for Mrs. Troy. And the guy's like, oh yeah, there she is over there. The first guy says, I have some awkward news to break to her. Her husband is drowned. Bathsheba hears this and her immediate reaction is too faint. She passes out. And as luck would have it, Boldwood is right there. He's right there just watching everything happen. And as she passes out, she doesn't hit the ground because he catches her. Anyway, he takes care of her, makes sure that everything's going to be okay. And then he goes to try to find out more as she, like she awakens, becomes conscious of everything. And then she actually does drive herself home. When she gets there, like Liddy has already found out what has happened. And she says to her, can I, how about your clothes? Like we need to get you morning clothes, right? And Beth, she was like, I'm not going to wear morning clothes because Frank's not dead. You read that and immediately go, okay, well, she's in like serious denial. But you find out that she actually like, she really does not believe that he's dead. On the one hand, she's like, well, it shouldn't happen this way. And I think that anyone who has suddenly lost someone in their life would probably think the same thing. No, I should have felt something. You know, I should have felt like a loss or I should have seen this coming or I should have. Yeah, there should have been like a huge pause in in the universe if this person in my life had passed away like this is not right. So she is a little bit in denial. But then a few days later, she reads the newspaper and she reads the the eyewitness account of a guy named Mr. Barker, MD of Budmouth. And he said that he actually saw a bather 
who was carried along in the current outside the mouth of the cove. He was like, there's no way that that swimmer could have survived unless he was like a swimming pro and very, very strong. And this guy had even like walked along to try to follow him, but the bather had disappeared. And then the second piece of, of evidence for Bathsheba is that they brought her all of his clothes that he had been wearing. And just by virtue of the fact that there's like all these things in his pockets and it just seems like he had meant to put them back on. And so the fact that they're there on the shore, she's like, I guess he's gone. Yeah. And the last thing is that she pulls his watch out and she finds Fanny Robbins hair and she almost burns it and she doesn't. Yeah. She wants to keep it in memory of her, but she also kind of wonders if he did it. Maybe he wanted to follow Fanny. Yeah. Maybe he wanted to go with her. That could be why he died. Maybe he did it on purpose. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So interesting. But yeah, of course. So he comes back to the shore and his clothes are gone. And then he gets that offer to go, I guess, ship needs workers or something. And he thinks, I've done so much damage to Bathsheba. I might I might as well go. It'd be better for her if I just disappear. He decides to go yeah. away. Interesting. Okay. So chapter 49, Oak's Advancement, A Great Hope. So it's winter. Bathsheba is kind of more calm than she has been, but she's still not at peace with everything. Right. She's still upset that Troy is not hers. Get over this, lady. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. Please. It would take a while that she was like head over heels for whatever reason. Yes. She can't let it go. It says that she lost interest in farming, but it was just like, it just kept going. She'd hired Gabriel to do the things that she didn't want to do. But then Boldwood is also kind of going through something because probably just, he's just upset about the whole situation with Bathsheba. And so he kind of neglects his crops and they're failing. And so he asks Gabriel if he wants to take over his farm too. At first, Bathsheba's like, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's too much for him. But Boldwood says, insists, I need him. So here we have Gabriel who just keeps getting wealthier and wealthier yeah, and more handsome and more handsome. But the people around him are saying how cheap he is because his lifestyle isn't changing. So it doesn't look like he's yeah, moving up. The, because the word they use is they think that he is a near man. And some were beginning to consider Oak a near man because his financial situation had significantly improved, but he continued to like wear the same clothes, live in the same little house, make his own bed with his own hands and make make his food and things. And so I was just trying to look it up because I was like, what does that mean? Does it mean that they thought he was cheap or that he was crazy? I don't know. So I was just trying to look that up. So I'm not like I should look on Google Scholar or something, but I'm not immediately finding anything that gives me indication of what, how they would have used the word near. The synopsis I read mm-hmm. said cheap, mm-hmm. but they thought he was cheap. Interesting. Because his lifestyle didn't get any better. And he doesn't care what other people think. Right. And that's the bottom line. Yeah. So Boldwood is like an emotional wreck. He secludes himself neglects his crops and then you've got gabriel who's like steady and he's like steadily climbing the ladder mm-hmm. and he's on top of things they give him a horse and he is covering like what does it say like two thousand acres of land wow to make sure it's all running the way that it needs to yeah that's pretty awesome <laughs> this is funny 
so Bathsheba has started wearing mourning clothes because she's probably mm-hmm. accepted the fate, but he's probably dead. And so Boldwood now has a new hope of mm-hmm. marrying her, of winning her. And so he's talking about if he marries, if she marries anybody again, he hopes it will be him. And then during the haymaking, he asks Liddy about her awkwardly. He's like, very awkwardly. Do you think she'll ever consider marrying again? And Liddy says, well, she hasn't said anything. And then she kind of says, if she does, I think it'll be in seven years. And she thinks that Boldwood is super dumb. Yeah. (laughs) You think she's going to marry you? And so, and it was like, I think she will after seven years, but it's been a year. So six more years. So six years. Liddy asks Boldwood, have you approached Bathsheba about this? And he turns red, leaves, and feels ashamed. <laughs> He's like, no, I haven't talked to her about it. But yeah. Yeah. So do you have anything else for that chapter? With himself. Well, I was just thinking about it. I was like, you can't, you can't help but feel bad for Boldwood. Yes. Like, and he does, he goes away feeling so angry at himself. First of all, I love the word vexed and I think that we should use it more. But anyways, he's very vexed with himself, just very frustrated with himself because he had acted like an idiot and he knew he had. And I was like, how many times? I don't know. Maybe you never do. But there's all these times I'm like, I am a, at least a fairly intelligent person. And yet I'll have these exchanges with people sometimes that I go away and I'm like, well, well, they think I'm a complete fool. And like, that's fair. <laughs> I proved it. <laughs> Cause I acted like one. So whatever. And you just feel bad for him because he's probably like, I am an intelligent, like established farmer. And I just acted like a total fool. Do you ever but, feel like you're yeah. around people that there's certain people that intimidate me where then whenever I'm around them, I find myself saying stupid things. Totally. And it's usually somebody that I feel inferior to. Okay. So like maybe somebody who makes a lot of money or somebody sure. who's like an important position or something. And I always leave and I'm like, I know it's my thinking when I'm in the conversation that makes me say stupid things. But then I leave and I'm like, oh my gosh, I sound like such an idiot. Yeah. No. And that makes me think like when you say like people with a lot of money, sometimes they'll come across as like very refined or something. And sometimes when I'm around them, I find myself doing things that I'm like, I don't even do this normally, but this is making me look like total trash, you know, like (laughs) that I was literally raised in a barn. This is not how I am, but I find myself like lowering myself to the way that I think they perceive me. Yep. Exactly. That makes sense. Yep. So I've heard that. I've heard that, that when you're worried about somebody thinking something of you, it's because you actually think that of you. So yeah. that totally makes sense. Somehow we got to like get out of our own heads when we're talking oh, to people. <laughs> totally. Yeah. To be like, no, like I, I do actually have something interesting to say. And if we really don't have anything interesting to say, I guess being quiet is not a bad <laughs> idea because then they just never know. <laughs> you're like, why don't I just not say anything? Yeah. Um, I wrote this down because like I said, I just felt for him so much in this. And so I wrote, I was thinking about when I was a senior in high school and I was in a seminary class. Cause I was thinking about like, like just continuing to like dig yourself into this hole deeper and deeper. Cause you can see him like trying to like make intelligent remarks and, and, tie things together somehow and it's just not working and it's just digging this hole for him. And so I was thinking about when I was a senior in high school and it was like the last week of school or the last couple of weeks. And in seminary, 
they had, I think they called it seminary day or something for that day. They had people sign up and um, they wanted people to sing and, and do these performances. And then at the end, they would have a testimony meeting. So I'd been in like the, the advanced choirs and things. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll sing. That's fine. And then, so, oh no, that's not what happened. So these, these younger girls, these sophomore girls, I wasn't going to sing. These sophomore girls had asked me if I would sing with them. And I was like, sure. And then these junior girls had asked if I would accompany them on the piano while they sang. And I was like, sure. Okay. We get to seminary that day and I play the piano for those girls and I messed up. I don't even know how many times it was awful. And then I get up to sing and my voice was so dry that I'm going to hit the high notes and it cracked like three times. So mortifying. And you would think after that, I would just be like, you know what? I'm just going to sit down, (laughs) just wait out the rest of the day. But no, the testimony meeting part comes around and I get up and I'm like fumbling my way through it. And then the bell rings like in the middle of my testimony. And it was just awful. I was like, you know, I just, I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear a sack on my head for the rest of school. Just go home and get in bed. I know. Can't get any worse. I'm such a moron. Like I should have just stopped while I was ahead. But probably nobody even noticed or cared. Just you. Except people actually did laugh when my voice cracked. Oh, singing. well, never mind. But then they forgot about rough. it. Eh, probably. I mean, after all these years, I'm sure they did, but I didn't. Guess it was traumatizing. It was traumatic. I have like visions of myself saying stupid things to people like strangers that come back to me all the time. I'm like, I was eight years old and I said this stupid thing to the neighbor. I'm like, why can I not forget that? And if we just could really put our mind around the fact that those people have forgotten it. They don't even yes, care. They, do. they probably didn't even care in the moment. Honestly, it was 35 years ago. They yeah. probably did. <laughs> There's okay. That's not funny, but yes. Like, like they don't even care. Like, why are we caring so much? Right. Anyways, poor Boldwood. Oh, that's really funny. Bless his heart. We need him to just go away. Cause he's driving us crazy, but we still feel bad for him. Yes. He's poor guy. He's dumb. <laughs> okay. So that was it. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> lots of good stuff. The The story keeps building and building in the next section. Next time we're going to be, you know, wrapping it all up. And there's just some unexpected things happen. Some people come back into the picture that you don't think are going to. And there's just all these twists and turns, lots of events that you're like, wow, didn't see that coming, but it's really, it's kind of exciting. It's good stuff. And it's kind of an amazing ending. So I'm excited. I know it'll be fun. We've been, we've been working on this book for a long time. So yeah, it'll be fun to end it. I think that this is a really good place to talk about what we've been reading. This is my favorite part. I mean, it's not my favorite part because I like the other part too. So I don't know. It's all favorite, all favorite. So what have you been reading? So I just finished Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. Have you ever heard of Danny Shapiro? So it's funny because I've heard a lot about that one lately. Yeah, um, I haven't read anything by that author, but. A couple of years ago, I read, she has like a memoir about, it's called Inheritance. And so in that book, she basically, after her parents are gone, figures out she has a DNA test and figures out that her father wasn't her father. And so she goes on this big, long, like search to figure out who her father was. Well, her father was a doctor in Portland, Oregon. That was donating sperm, like prolific. 
specifically is that the right word Ooh. yeah so yeah. very interesting and so she goes on this like she gets to meet all these half siblings that had been in multiple different families it's very it was very interesting I and mean, I like DNA so that was interesting so that's like she's written a couple of memoirs but this book it says is like the first fiction book she's written in 15 years and it was pretty mm-hmm. good so it's about this family with well there's three teenagers in a car one night they're drinking and there's an accident and one of the teenagers passes away and their father who is a doctor is the first one on the scene mm-hmm. so they're all kind of traumatized by this night and there's secrets around what happened like one of them says they were driving but they weren't and they never talk about it again so they've got this secret behind them well this family moves in down the street this jewish couple and they the the woman is pregnant and she goes into labor and she's not gonna make it to the hospital so this man comes over and delivers the baby the doctor across the street and he does some things that like save the baby i mean if he hadn't been there this baby would would have have. died yeah okay and the baby is interesting because he's he doesn't have friends he like is really into astronomy constellations Mm -hmm. he doesn't his dad doesn't really understand him anyway so he becomes friends with this doctor like i don't want to tell too much more because sounds like quite the story like there's a lot to it yeah this these two families are very connected in the end most of the book the wife of the doctor is her brain is failing her right she has dementia Mm -hmm. and so this boy is kind of connected with him and helping him through that Mm. anyways that's good i liked it i think i told you i loved it and then i read what i talked about last week running for my life Mm -hmm. which i am just about through and i've ordered a copy because I am reading it to my kids. I was like, this needs to be required reading for my children. And then I was like, whenever I do that, I never have a way of tracking it. So I'm going to read it to them, all of them, big kids and little kids. I love it so much. And I think it's such an important story for kids to hear. I told you. So good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I keep telling people and nobody's ever heard of it. And so I'm kind of like, I wonder what she thought of it. I wonder if you read it. I just, I loved it. So anyways, I read that the next day. And so it kind of Mm -hmm. overshadowed, overshadowed the Danny Shapiro Mm -hmm. book, but I liked that one until I read Running for My Life. And then I was like, this is the best book I've read in months. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. So besides that, what are you reading? (laughs) Okay, so I thought I would share about the book that I'm currently reading to my kids because those are always some of my favorites. So we're reading a book called The Kite Writer by uh, Geraldine Macarian. I think that's how you say it. I know there's the book, The Kite Runner. Yeah, I was like, it's not that one. (laughs) No. When our kids had to read it for high school and when I heard they were reading it, I was like, what? Anyways. That's yeah, the kite runner. <laughs> not that one. I know. In fact, when I first heard about the kite runner, I had actually already read the kite rider to my kids like nine or 10 years ago. And so when I first heard kite runner, I was like, this is like a big deal to everybody. Like we totally read that and forgot that there were very different words. Yes. <laughs> Very different concepts too. So the kite rider takes place in medieval China, 13th century China. Of course, they're 
dates and things are different, but according to our timeline, it would be 13th century China. So this is when the Mongols had their empire throughout China. And China is actually called like Cathay. Um, so the Mongols are ruling, but the Chinese consider the Mongols to be barbarians. Uh, but they're interspersed throughout, you know, they're everywhere. And Kublai Khan is the current emperor of China, as well as all these other parts all throughout Asia and even parts of Europe that the Mongols have conquered. Anyway, this little boy, Hao Yu, he becomes a kite rider. And this was a thing. He, you know, the kites, I believe they were invented in China. I'm pretty sure they were. And for a time, they had people like riding kites, like way up into the sky. Like R-I-D-I-N-G? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said writing, like oh, W-R-I-T-I-N-G. Nope. Okay. Nope. Like ride the kites like they would strap them to the kites and they would be flying up in the air okay and so the thing is that this little boy how you his father was a sailor and it starts out with him going down to the docks with his father and the first and his father's a sailor and uh the first mate of the ship is super jealous of how you's father his name is pay because pay has a gorgeous wife and they're all very poor very you know very much peasants. So for this woman to be, you know, beautiful, it's very um, not super common. I mean, anyway, so this first mate is super jealous and he has how you's father strapped to this kite that captains of ships, they would set the kite sailing up into the air the day of a voyage to make sure that the luck would be with them. And if the kite flew straight and true it was going to be a good voyage if it was like all over the place and wobbly then they would delay because the voyage was not going to be good luck they would go another day so they had these people that would be strapped to the kites and they would be the wind testers so how you's father under much protest and he's actually like knocked out i believe when he's strapped to this kite and he comes to quickly when he's like finds himself sailing in the air and the kite is like going all over the place. He dies of heart failure on this kite, which you can imagine if it's something that you are not like absolutely terrifying, something you're not planning on. So scary. So he dies, it kills him. So how you and his mother and his little sister, they're completely destitute. They're like uh, relying on their great uncle to take care of them. He wants to marry his how use mother off to this awful first mate who's responsible for pay's death how you one way or the other like just through a series of events he ends up riding a kite and this this circus master sees him doing it and he's like i will pay you a lot of money to come be part of my circus and you can travel with me and i'll take care of you and you can have plenty of money to send back to your mother and you're going to be the kite rider And so from there on, it's just all these adventures that he has being a kite rider. At one point, he, one of the little girls that is part of a family that is with the circus, she goes missing in the rice paddies. She's two years old and they're just absolutely terrified that she's going to drown in the rice paddies. And so he 
flies up on the kite, even though it's not a good day for flying on the kite. So, because he can see, you know, everything and he's able to save her. Um, after a time, they actually use it as a military strategy and they are able to, they come across Kublai Khan himself and perform for him and also are almost killed by him. Anyway, there's just, there's lots to it. So you learn lots about that period of time in China, the culture, their superstitions, their ways. It's just, it's really, really fascinating. Very good book. It kind of gives me vibes. Remember that? I think it was a Disney movie with the girl that jumped, like dove the horses. Is that right? Yeah. Diving um, horses. Wild hearts can't be broken. Yeah. That reminds me of that kind of. Yeah. Like this totally kind of random sport that nobody knows about. But And she's like like, traveling with the circus or whatever, Mm -hmm. like fairs and doing it in Anyway, that was a good movie. I haven't watched that movie it, in like 30 years. It was years. a good movie. I, yeah, <laughs> it was a really good movie. In fact, it was so funny because I remember we were way into, oh my gosh, this show, the main girl in the show, we'd been watching it, Ken and I, and then me and the kids watched Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. I was like, that's Fiona. So the main girl in Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, like grew up and plays this main character in this show that I can't remember. Oh, look it up. Oh, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken was made in 1991. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Gabriel Anwar. Yes. Yes, that's right. (gasps) Burn. No, you wouldn't have watched that. (gasps) Yes. Burn Notice. (laughs) Burn Notice. Did you say, oh, you wouldn't watch that? Yes. We did. (laughs) My dad liked that show. And we watched like a season or two and David and I get tired of shows really quick so we watched a few episodes and then we're like but yeah I honestly don't even remember I remember going this is kind of like super violent and we would never let the kids watch but yeah (laughs) it says it was on from 2007 to 2013 that's quite a while yeah I know we didn't watch all of it but yeah we did watch a couple of seasons oh anyway yeah, interesting. Wild hearts can't be broken. Yeah, that sounded kind of similar. Just yeah, completely random sport. Yeah. Um, but that is actually so funny that you brought that up because today we were reading, and he takes this like really bad dive oh, from from the kite, and he today we were reading about how he was able to save this little girl because he he risked his life basically to go up into the air when it was I mean it was windy but not very the rope started to pull him down so he like cut loose from the rope so he's just like floating in the air on this kite oh. he, but he spots her and then the kite starts to dive and he just like crashes face first and then after it's all over he's like and some of the mud i couldn't even wipe out of my eye it was like some of the mud got right into my brain and just you know made a spot there and i can't remember if he ends up going blind but anyway so i was totally thinking of wild hearts oh, gosh. because i was like oh I remember when she had the horrible crush and then she went blind anyways such a sad movie but yes one i have to introduce my children to now yeah <laughs> we're so happy you joined us for this episode We hope you'll join us next week as we discuss Far From the Madding Crowd, chapters 50 to 57. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. 
We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.